When I was a reporter at the Buenos Aires Herald, covering the process of national reorganization, which is the name that the dictatorship, dictatorship gave itself, and I think the name itself is already a genocide giveaway, there was one question uppermost on my mind. Could the replacement of truth by delusional and murderous belief systems that I was witnessing in Argentina occur in the United States of America, the country where I was born and where I grew up? Now, I had expected this to remain a purely rhetorical question in my lifetime, but it hasn't. So this evening I will share with you the observations I made during this collapse of reality that preceded the coup and the work I have done since then in an attempt to understand how that disintegration of truth occurred and how that allowed the mass murder that followed to happen. Today we hear about the cultural war in the United States. The waging of a cultural war to reunite church and state that were torn asunder by the French Revolution has been a central theme of Argentine and Spanish nationalists since the birth of fascism in Italy in 1920. I started out my journalistic career at the Herald reporting on this cultural war because the generals themselves said they were waging a cultural war. And success in this cultural war was more important to the generals than the mere physical extermination of the country's small guerrilla groups. Indeed, to this day, the former perpetrators deeply lament the loss of the cultural war. So to understand what I have lived through during this dictatorship, I have spent the last 25 years interviewing the victims as well as the perpetrators of the Argentine genocide. I have also, of course, interviewed a large number of Holocaust survivors and the Nazi fugitives who once persecuted them, as well as some of those who aided in the flight of these Nazis to Argentina. Doing so, I discovered that often Jewish refugees and Nazi fugitives traveled on the same ships to Argentina. The, the ship usually left from Genoa in Italy, and I remember there was one man called uh, Marcelo Furman. He was a, a man from Vienna, and uh, he told me that on the ship from Italy to Buenos Aires, there was him and a group of, of Jewish uh, survivors. He said, at dinner on the ship, at the table next door, there was a group of SS men who every night toasted to the, to the, you know, the memory of the Fuhrer. Each of these individual stories is unique and tinged with shades of nuance. But there are common threads, however. The principal thread that I found was that during these interviews with both the Nazi and Argentine perpetrators, they always portrayed themselves as the real victims in their story. They portrayed themselves and not the people they had tortured and murdered as the victims, when they were clearly the exact opposite. So for the Nazis, the enemy, of course, were the Jewish elders who secretly ruled the world. The enemy of the Argentine truth destroyers was a vast imaginary legion of, uh, of young guerrillas determined to overturn Argentina's Western and Christian way of life. The military lost the cultural war. They won, they won the, the, the military war. They killed around 30,000 people, but they lost the cultural war. Democracy was regained and civic rights have been steadily increasing in Argentina since their demise. I've covered much of these gains for The Guardian. The first was divorce, there's no divorce in Argentina. Of course, recently abortion, gay marriage, indigenous rights, 
the rights of women, all gains that fly in the face of the toxic attempt by the military to make Argentina, they wanted to make Argentina the moral reserve of the Western world. Sidebar, these Kafkian labels, you know, moral reserve of the Western world, process of national reorganization, are not post facto attempts by me to define the state terror regime. These labels were used in the texts and speeches by the dictatorship itself. And the, this lexicon was based in, in the writings of the Argentine and Spanish nationalists, Catholic nationalists of the 1930s and, and 40s. And this body of literature and this, this body of thinking is what made Argentina particularly receptive to the arrival of Nazi fugitives in the 1940s, and I'll explain that now. Uh, and also, it made Argentina tolerant of the killings of the 1970s. For example, when SS criminal Klaus Barbie, who was uh, um, very active in France and responsible for, for, for tremendous crimes in France, when, when Klaus Barbie was spirited across the Atlantic via the Vatican escape route in 1951, he asked the clergyman in Rome who was aiding his escape, he asked him, why are you helping me? The churchman explained, the Vatican wishes to create a reserve against Marxism in South America. It's often asked, why did the Vatican help? The Vatican saw the Nazis, of course, as, as bad, but not as bad as the Soviets, and the Vatican thought, well, we can just put them somewhere on standby, and then they can be reawakened if there's a Third World War with the Soviet Union or something like that. And basically to inoculate South America against Marxism as well. And my attempt to understand this mental universe that allowed Argentina to not only accept but invite these Nazis, and, and, and the mental universe that allowed the crimes of the dictatorship to happen afterwards, I spent an inordinate amount of time um, studying the speeches of Francisco Franco, the, the dictator of Spain from 1936 to 1975, and the related writings of Argentine Catholic nationalists. A central theme for Franco and, and the nationalists in Argentina is the perceived service that Hitler was unknowingly providing Christianity by undoing the, to them, unnatural and pernicious effects of the French Revolution. Franco, in his speeches, thrilled over and over again at the chance that Hitler was presenting Christianity by erasing French Revolution from history. Once Hitler had done his work in France and Belgium, Christian leaders could step in and abolish the evil separation of church and state which obsessed Franco and obsessed the Argentine nationalists, the, the idea that the French Revolution had separated church and state. They needed governments to be headed by the church once again. The only detail they hadn't figured out is how they would get Hitler's permission to do this. And they decided, even if Hitler resisted the attempt to reimpose Christian governments in, in France, etc., they still felt it would be worthwhile to be on the side of Hitler to erase the heresies of the French Revolution. And now, I'm, I, I kid you not, because to, to understand how, what happened in Argentina, how could a country that you know, is extremely well-educated with the largest middle class in South America, free public education up to university level, free public health, how did it suddenly, in the 1970s, open up death camps and start throwing people out of airplanes rather than putting them in crematoriums? 
So, my job at the Herald including reporting the delusional rants by Argentina's generals justifying mass murder as part of the cultural war that they were waging to save Christianity. They went on and on and on about how the, the governments in, in the United States and Europe didn't realize the danger that Christianity was in and they would step in to save the day. In 1977, I wrote an article in the Herald on how General Adel Vilas, a bloody crusader of this cultural war, traced subversion back to the English 14th century philosopher William of Ockham. Now, I'm not making this up. And just to make sure I'm not making it up, I went to the National Library, dug up the old heralds, and I found my story, 18 August 1977, in the Herald. I'm quoting, Vilas holds that Argentina's cultural war is part of a third world war, a process of dissolution at work in Western civilization for the past five centuries, initiated by the degraded scholasticism of Oakham. Two weeks later, I reported on General Benjamin Menendez ranting on in the same vein. Argentina is one of the battlefields of what is in reality a third world war, he said in the speech. Now, why was I so sensitive to the fantastical ideological universe that so many Argentines inhabited? Because it was not just the generals, but um, I arrived in Argentina, and of course, I, 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 you know, I, I, I'd gone to school a couple of years in Argentina from seven to nine, but I, because the school system was built around this 1930s nationalist mindset, this kind of mental universe didn't seem strange to the, even the young people that I met. Why was I able to see it? And I think it was because I had not been born or schooled in Argentina. You know, I was born and raised in DC, in Washington DC, and the truth is that in 1975, I was still in Dublin. I was studying English Lit at, uh, at Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, at night, I worked at the Focus Theatre, which was an independent theatre group, one of the most important in Dublin. And I was taking acting classes from Deirdre O'Connell, an Irish-American independent uh, theatre producer. And then, as if a wand had been, magical wand had been, or an evil wand, <laughs> I was stuck in the Herald translating the, this murderous, mindless drivel, fully aware that innocent people were being tortured and killed all around me. So I'd gone from, you know, studying John Donne and W.B. Yeats and, 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 you know, dabbling in Pablo Neruda, Trinity, and suddenly I was translating Actel Vilas going on about the, what was it, the, the uh, degraded scholasticism of Oakland being the reason why Marxism was a danger. So had I been born and raised in Argentina and where the school system was still deeply steeped in this nationalist 1930s uh, worldview, I might have had unquestioning faith in it and not realized, uh, and not had the cognitive dissonance that I, that I, that was, you know, my constant companion in Argentina. In the months leading up to the dictatorship, before the coup, there was the idea that there was a huge guerrilla army that would take over power in Argentina and turn Argentina into a Cuban-style socialist state. And of course, there, there was uh, guerrilla activity in Argentina, but not the kind that could have, you know, the guerrillas in Argentina never occupied even a single city corner for more than half an hour. Uh, the number of people they killed is, I think, 600. So there couldn't have been more than 200 or 300, you know, um, guerrillas who, who actually killed somebody. So when I started interviewing the perpetrators, 
one of the things that I was very interested in was what was their mindset at, at the time of this? So, okay, so I spoke to the wife of the Navy lieutenant who was in charge of throwing captives from the planes, you know, over the Atlantic Ocean. Military planes would fly out an hour and a half, two hours in, over the, the Atlantic and throw th them live. They were drugged, so they were asleep, but they were still alive into the Atlantic Ocean. The wife of this Navy lieutenant who did this told me that she lived, that they lived in such a state of fear that every time they went to the supermarket, her husband rode on the passenger seat alongside her with a machine gun over his lap in case they were attacked by terrorists. Were you ever attacked, I said? No. Was anybody on your Navy base where you lived, was any of the families? No. So even though they were never attacked, Yet her husband continued throwing young students out of planes because of the unreal fear of an attack in the supermarket parking lot. In 1978, the Argentine dictatorship informed Pinochet in Chile that it had already killed 22,000 people in Argentina. Human rights groups estimate that the total is around 30,000. But the number of guerrillas who actually killed somebody could have not been more than two or 300. Which begs the question, who were those thousands of other innocent persons who were being thrown out of the airplanes? So Argentina's genocide, or as I have heard it best defined, a genocidal situation that did not acquire the proportions of a full-scale Holocaust, this genocide did not initiate as a response to guerrilla activity. In my mind, and according to this reading that I have, it was a response rather to the cultural war that the military believed had been initiated by the English philosopher Occam in the 14th century. That is why they had to kill so many and not just those 200 or 300 armed guerrillas. Because in their minds, they weren't killing just guerrillas. They were leading a modern day crusade to rid the land of infidels. And so this is not me theorizing today about the probable motives of the Argentines generals. What I've been reading to you is me at age 23 at the Buenos Aires Herald translating verbatim from their speeches in real time.